Today on episode number 231 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, Josh Eiler shares about his new book, How Humans Learn, The Science and Stories Behind Effective College Teaching. Produced by Innovate Learning, Maximizing Human Potential. and welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. I'm thrilled to be welcoming back to the show Josh Eiler to share about his new book, How Humans Learn, The Science and Stories Behind Effective College Teaching. That book is published by West Virginia University Press, and I am particularly grateful to them for their financial support of getting the transcripts up on the Teaching in Higher Ed website. You may have noticed that as new episodes come out, There is available a transcript for each episode, and we're about 68% through the first 200 episodes, not that I'm counting or anything, (laughs) of going back to the whole history of teaching in higher ed, and that was all due to the sponsorship from West Virginia University Press, so thanks to them. Today's guest, Josh Eiler, is the director of the Center for Teaching Excellence and an adjunct associate professor of humanities at Rice University. After receiving his Ph.D. in Medieval Studies from the University of Connecticut in 2006, Josh moved to a position as assistant professor in the English department at Columbus State University in Georgia. Although he was approved for tenure at CSU, his love for teaching and his desire to work with instructors from many different disciplines led him to the field of faculty development and to George Mason University, where he served as an associate director for the Center of Teaching and Faculty Excellence from 2011 to 2013. In August of 2013, Josh came to Rice to take the position of director of the Center for Teaching Excellence. Josh's eclectic research interests include the biological basis of learning, evidence-based pedagogy, and disability studies. And one of the things that I consider about Josh is he's like my faculty development person. He has been for me for many years. I've learned so much from him, and I'm so glad to be welcoming him back to the show. Josh, welcome back to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thanks for having me, Bonnie. It's good to be back. It's been a while. You have been on many episodes in the past. You were on a very, very, very early episode, actually talking about (laughs) many of the themes from this book that you're here to talk to us about today. And then I have such a fun memory of our our episode that we did on the Pixar movies. Yes, uh, both of those were a lot of fun. And uh, it's always great to talk with you, Bonnie. Today, you're here to talk about your book, How Humans Learn, The Science and Stories Behind Effective College Teaching. And I know this has been a labor of love for a while. (laughs) Would you talk to us sort of about the early origins of why you wanted to write a book like this? 
Sure, absolutely. And you're right. It has has been a labor of love that goes back at least five or six years I've been working on it. But there are actually kind of two origins for the book. One is that in 2011, I moved from faculty position into teaching and learning work. And I started reading about a lot of these strategies and working with faculty to implement them and still had a lot of questions about not not just about how they worked, but why they worked and was looking for answers to that question and just kept finding answers that were more about the logistics and, and the how rather than the why. And so I really wanted to do some research into why those strategies that work so well do so and, and why those that don't kind of uh, fail to help our students learn. So that was one of the reasons that I wrote this book. And another reason, though, more personal reason was that in 2012, I became a dad, a beautiful daughter, Lucy. And in watching her kind of learn about the world, you know, from her earliest days till now, she's six now, it struck me that learning and curiosity and and so some of those ways that we approach kind of knowing about our world are so deeply ingrained in who we are and as i watched her sort of exploring i started to think well I wonder what happens. I mean, this is clearly kind of driving her everyday interactions with the world, this curiosity, this need to know. So what happens to that? And how do we hold on to it? And does it shape the way maybe our college students learn in the classroom? And so that was a question that I was deeply fascinated by. And it was it sort of governed the way I approached the research. And eventually, my my colleague here at Rice, Robin Page, gave me a book that I'm going to recommend at the end of the episode two called The Scientist in the Crib. And its argument was that adults learn the way they do because they're using structures and, and mechanisms that were designed for children. And so that tied everything together, kind of set me on my research path. And it was a just a wonderful kind of enlightening process where I learned a lot in writing the book. You mentioned in 2011, moving more of your work into faculty development. Are you still mm-hmm. also teaching today? Yes, I teach every semester. We have a graduate certificate in teaching and learning program that we run through our Center for Teaching Excellence. So I teach, and those are four credit courses. And so I teach in that every semester and at least once or more a year in academic year. I also teach undergraduate courses. I thought that was the case, but I wanted to clarify because one of Mm -hmm. the things I want to really start out with is this idea of curiosity And really grounding in how challenging it can be, and in my case, whether that be undergraduates or oftentimes even the doctoral students I work with, having really learned, or perhaps this is even an unlearning that happens where curiosity really gets minimized in the learning process. So just to help us recognize that you are grounded in reality, (laughs) do you see those same same challenges in your own teaching where you think, (laughs) oh my gosh, Lucy has this figured out, this curiosity thing. And I know you're such a curious person too, Josh, (laughs) and all the years I've known you. But where does that get lost? You know, because because that's oftentimes a big challenge in our teaching. Well, I think there are lots of ways to answer this question. I certainly, I certainly see it. I think one way that I've conceptualized it is that it doesn't get lost; it gets hidden. Mm. It falls to the background a little bit because another book I'm going to recommend at the end, Susan Engel's *The Hungry Mind*, has really shown that 
very young children, like, like with Lucy, are driven by curiosity. And then after a certain point, especially when children enter kind of our formal education systems, the fate of that curiosity rests not just in their hands, but with the people and the environments that they interact with. And so some of what happens is that we have educational systems that are rooted more in performance and competition and the extent to which you can succeed on standardized testing. And that's the system that's in play. There are amazing heroic teachers who are trying to work within that system to keep curiosity alive. But those systems, the way they're set up, students quickly learn that to succeed in that system, there's a game to be played. They learn how to play the game. And the game doesn't actually privilege taking intellectual risks and following the path that curiosity leads. So it's sort of a conditioning over time and a variety of factors that I think lead to students in college. Not, it's not that they don't want to be curious, it's that they've had this previous experience where curiosity hasn't necessarily been tied to reaching their educational goals. And so part of the goal of the chapter that I wrote on curiosity is of ways that we as instructors in the college classroom can tap back into that deeply seated and deeply felt curiosity that's there, we just kind of draw it back out again. One of the stories that's come up a couple of times on the podcast, Josh, involves my husband's high school chemistry teacher. And he started out his class with, there was a candle that was lit up in the front of the room and, you know, he gave his talk and And as the students were just about to leave the classroom, he picked up said tea light candle and put it in his mouth and chewed it and swallowed it. And he said, just remember, chemistry is not always what it seems. Oh, wow. And talking about igniting. I love it. it Because I I do think you're so right about it being hidden. It's certainly not gone. It's just in different contexts. And in an educational context, we've taught our learners not to engage in that kind of curiosity the way that they do in other contexts in their lives. And so what are some of the ways that you're hearing about or you're experimenting with to try to reignite, whether it's through shock, surprise, whether it's through emotion, whether it's through other right. ways that are just inspiring you and or you're seeing inspire others? Sure, right. Well, I think Some of the research on children's curiosity, well, actually quite a lot of the research, ultimately goes back to the questions that children ask. You know, young children, of course, are famous for asking many, 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 many questions. And some of the researchers on curiosity have begun to look at those questions and really kind of put the spotlight on the question as the unit of curiosity or the focal point of curiosity. And so a lot of the most uh, exciting college pedagogies that I'm seeing are still tied to that. So inquiry-based learning, very old, of course, but new ways to approach it. You know, those writers and researchers that are talking about designing our courses with key foundational questions in mind, constructivist pedagogy, where we're giving students the opportunity to develop knowledge for themselves with questions as their guide, teaching students how to ask really good questions. You know, in some ways, I think part of the purpose of college is to help students develop the skills to ask really great questions that lead to, you know, fruitful avenues of research and and more questions. So those are kind of some of the umbrella topics that have really emerged from this. 
and Ken Bain and what the best college teachers do really talks a lot about meaningful questions and how that drives our curiosity. So somehow, ultimately, because we are human beings who learn through curiosity, there needs to be some attention paid to the kinds of questions that we're asking, the way, we're, the way we use questions to fuel the work of the course and to really uh, help our students to learn more meaningfully. So I think some of my favorite examples that I've observed or read about are those instructors who are setting up their courses so that students are essentially rediscovering the origins of those topics. So I write about some chemistry teachers here at Rice, I write about a mathematician at UC Irvine, who their goals are essentially for their students to develop the discipline for themselves as if they were discovering it for the first time. And there's something magical about that. There's something a little scary and intimidating about trying to do that. But the examples that they've laid out and the tools that are available for us to can utilize those models, make it possible. What you're describing is the anecdote for so many of the challenges that I had in my early teaching, and I'm sure still struggle with today, and that as I'm coaching more and more faculty, it's just a common thing of needing to cover the topics, cover those learning objectives or whatever that looks like. And too many times we go to the textbooks and we see the table of contents and we start to make our week by week outline of what we're going to cover. And again, I'm not certainly making fun of faculty. I've done this as well, (laughs) but to back Mm -hmm. up and I really, that's such the big takeaway that I have from what you've written and also from Ken Bain as well as getting to those questions and they just center us. And that's been helpful for me, but to tie it back to curiosity, I know I have not done enough. I mean, it's a constantly developing process for all of us. Mm -hmm. And I also don't want to suggest, I think, that somehow we are responsible for recovering all of our students' curiosity. I think it's more directly connected to what you just said, that we can utilize curiosity as a tool to help our students learn more. So finding ways to use those questions that we ask in discussion to tap into that curiosity or allowing students to develop their own questions that they then use to lead discussion that they're passionately curious about or designing courses that begin with questions and gradually move towards content, you know, uh, kind of a classic backward design sort of model. But in some ways, the things I talk about in the book are kind of key tools for us that are natural parts of, of how everyone learns. That is a really helpful reminder. I might have to just put it on a recording and play it regularly for myself because I think that if I were to, and it certainly has been something I have been guilty of, if I were to focus too much on the responsibility for recapturing it for everyone in the room, then I might have a tendency toward trying to be too oriented, too rooted in charismatic teaching, you know, the performance of it and eating a candle is great, but do I have to come up with an eating the candle version for right, but, every single but what minute have of we learned about class? candles? Right from that, right? Yeah, I think you're right. Exactly. Um, this is not meant to kind of add more work. It's in fact kind of designed to 
help us do our jobs better and more efficiently because we are connecting to ways that people are naturally learning. And so we're not creating courses and assignments that run against that grain. We're going with the grain to help our students and, you know, help our help our own time management. And it isn't, it also, to me, helps me get over myself a little bit. <laughs> like my, my class is just one part of their very big lives. And, you know, I do want them to have a wonderful experience while they're there. And yet at the same time, I want to remember I am just a small context of a very broader part of their, you know, their lives and their goals and all of that. Sure. Well said. And, and I completely agree. And I think if there's one theme that anyone could take from this book is that students are human beings and that, you know, we are privileged to have this glimpse of their time with us in our classrooms, but their lives are so much more than that as well. I'd like to explore a couple more of the themes that you write about in the book that is authenticity and failure. And specifically, one of the things that just kept coming back to my mind is how difficult this can be for so many of us, whether we're talking about our students, but especially us as professors, is because Mm -hmm. our disciplines, the way in which many of our research orientations are created is to minimize failure. And and one of the small ways that I've seen this come up is this controversy around what's called p-hacking. And I know many listeners will already know what that means. But for some that come from disciplines that won't, this is some researchers being criticized for not having your scientific approach where you have a hypothesis and then you test for a hypothesis instead just having in this case grad students just gather as much data about as much random stuff in the discipline and looking for a p-score of 0.05 or higher to look for something that might be statistically significant and then authoring papers around that so i i mentioned this as just one way we academics can go wait a minute i don't want to fail so let's let's try to rig this thing so that i don't have to experience you know a hypothesis that didn't quite turn out the way i'd hoped or doesn't you know help me in terms of building a scholarship portfolio over many decades there's lots of ways we try to avoid failure as academics Mm -hmm. and lots of ways that we've been trained to not be authentic and just one example there that comes to my mind is just we tell people who are on the tenure track you know just don't really say much until after you get tenure you know just be very 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 quiet and and nice and don't stir things up and you know what that does to our institutions. So yeah, I wonder if you would reflect a little bit on just authenticity and failure as it relates to us getting better at it when we've really been taught not to be. Sure, absolutely. Well, I'll start with failure because that's a hot button, always in the news kind of topic in higher ed circles. And there were two things kind of embedded in your comment about failure that I think we really need to take seriously and that I talk a lot about in my chapter on failure. And one of those is that we are, and I mean we as uh, as people, not just we as academics, but people are kind of conditioned to fear failure. There's an epidemic of anxiety about failure among students, among pretty much anyone who seeks out, seeks to accomplish something. And Jessica Leahy's book, The Gift of Failure, really digs into this wonderfully. It's a brilliant book. And in that, she says that, you know, that this is not something that we really intend to do to our children, make them fear failure, but it's epidemic. And a lot of the research shows that our college students have a a 
profound fear of failure, regardless of whether or not they have actually ever experienced failure. So those who have run into obstacles in the past fear of failure and those who have excelled fear of failure. And so this is, this is kind of the, the context that we're teaching in. But in addition to that, you know, every researcher, anyone who has become an academic knows that there's an awful lot of failure on the road to success. We don't go in the lab and magically find the Nobel Prize winning discovery. People in the humanities don't just open a book and come up with, you know, a brilliant interpretation. So there's a lot of trying and failing and learning from that. And we kind of intuitively know that about our researching lives. But then our society has kind of created educational systems that work in exactly the opposite way. Students have very few shots at performing in contexts where failure is not rewarded at all, in fact, quite the contrary. And so you have the fear of failure and the fact that our educational systems are set up to prioritize grades and success rather than the opportunities that we all recognize as researchers that the opportunities to learn, to try things out, to take risks, and to learn from those moments when they don't succeed. So the challenge then is for us, if we know all this, how do we kind of push back against that system? How do we use our courses and our assignments to offer our students some opportunities in a low-stakes environment, try things out, and get feedback both in times of success and times of failure, so that they can then learn from that. And by this, I don't mean like let's let students fail courses and and have a learning experience there, because that's a very privileged philosophy that people could afford to fail whole courses. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm really talking about within our courses and our assignments, how do we build in opportunities for mistakes and errors so that our students can benefit from our natural processes for kind of learning from that cycle of of trying and failing. And so there's some great work out there, great researchers, great uh, instructors in the classroom who are designing pedagogies of failure, ways to help students encounter those failures in a low-stakes environment so that they can learn more effectively down the road. That is not something I was ever taught in graduate school, so Mm -hmm. it was counterintuitive at first, but the more I read about it, the more I tried things out and talked to people about it, the more evident it became just how beneficial that approach could be for students. One of the many reasons why I treasure conversations like the one that we're having right now is just the constant opportunity to reflect on my own values and then how those values do or do not play out in my own teaching. And this is certainly one where I value, I would have told you long ago, you know, I value that these opportunities that you're describing, but my practices Mm -hmm. back then would not have mapped to that. And I just really treasure now that I, I've been able to learn that from people like you and and many others who've come on the podcast. And one one of the things I was thinking about Monday, I'm going to be giving a pop quiz. And, you know, you might just think, oh, why would you do that? And the reason why I would do that is because it's been a while. We're reading two books in this class and we're kind of getting into the Mm -hmm. second one now. And so I want to make sure that they don't forget about the first one. And when I first announced we're having a pop quiz, they'll usually get really bummed. Like, what? Wait a minute. This is so different from what you told us. We weren't going to have any tests. Well, it's going to be a test. Right, right, right. I actually didn't build the answer key for at all. I did it off of quizlet.com. It'll like generate little tests for me. And so I'm Mm -hmm. coming into it not knowing what the answers are to the questions that it 
get populated and there'll be no grade. I will not be asking anyone to turn in the paper. It's simply a way for us to do a little bit of what's called retrieval practice at the very first sure. five, 10 minutes of class, just to remind us Definitely. that first book that we read the first half of, we're kind of now going to weave our way back into it. I want to make sure we don't forget what we read. And so just using methods that we learned while we were going to school and just questioning them and figuring out, you know, what's going to work about them in our pedagogy and what should we get rid of altogether? Right. And honestly, that for me, as I was, I started with these key questions as I was writing the book, but as I got into it, one of the things that was a real, uh, a motivating factor for me throughout the project was the things I was learning and thinking about and writing about that it could serve as a really useful kind of test of our intuitions and assumptions about teaching that it could offer a nice check and checks and balances sort of system for us. So Mm -hmm. that's exactly one of the things that I found too, that when I, began teaching, I had intuitions, some of which has turned out to be supported by research and some not. And so this has been a useful kind of litmus test for me and I hope for others who might read the book. That was one of the things I really enjoyed about it is that I found I could relax into the chapters, not feeling like I had to retain all of the wonderful stories that you tell and the examples and ways we could be inspired because every chapter ends with a, okay, (laughs) it is not written quite as a checklist, but in my mind, it becomes one because I love checklists, (laughs) but but just, you know, a quick recap that I could go back and calibrate and see if indeed I am using these methods and approaches and if they're, you know, aligning with these, all these things that I want to value and to put in practice as well. Before we close this part of the interview, talk a little bit about authenticity and its role in learning. Sure, definitely. You know, as I've been thinking about it, it it kind of emerges in two ways. One is the authenticity of, of the actual learning environment or the learning task, how our brains really respond to learning environments that they can intuit as authentic rather than artificial, meaning as close to real as possible. And sort of the less theoretical way to say that is simply, how can we help students do work that is similar to the kinds of things that scholars in the discipline do? So authentic work, I think, is one way to think about authenticity. And teaching strategies go along with that. What are what are ways that we can really immerse our students in the process of learning. But then there's also our authenticity, who we are in the classroom, how we interact with students. One of the other chapters is on emotion. And a lot of that has to do with personal connection to our students, recognizing them as human beings, caring about who they are as learners and about their success in our classrooms. So without taking away from the rigor or of our courses or removing any professional barriers, it is still very possible to show students that we care about who they are, that we are here to help them learn, to help them to succeed, to help them meet their goals for their lives. And that that part of the work of college, and I really believe this, that part of the work of college is to help our students figure out what they find meaningful in their life and pursue that. And so there's a real kind of authenticity element to that imagining of what the teaching relationship can be. On a recent episode, it was either Robin DeRosa who said, or someone quoting Robin DeRosa, I can't even remember at this moment, (laughs) but Robin was really putting a critical lens on our sometimes use of the phrase, you know, 
in the real world this happens and she's like our students are in the real world right now and right. you know writing about how many of them hold jobs and are caring for family members with health challenges. I mean, just on and on. It's a, a phrase that I have used early in my career that I don't want to be part of my current vernacular. Yet, mm-hmm. when you talk about authenticity, that part's important. That part, yes. to put it in a context yes. that makes it more meaningful. A- an example of that would be, you know, giving someone a test when you're not ever going to have a test in my field in business, you know, you're not, no one's going to sit down. I shouldn't say no one's ever going to because there's the annual sexual harassment prevention online course I will have to take a test in. But, you know, the vast majority of our work does not involve taking tests. But the amount of time in the business discipline, for example, that people give tests while they're in school is doing a disservice to the kind of work that students will actually be expected and are expected to do in more of a professional environment. Right, and yes, so that's exactly right. I, I take Robin's point absolutely to heart and agree with her that, that to imagine that college is somehow separate from the real world is to do a disservice to the students who are currently working with. But the realness that I was talking about is exactly what you were describing, that Imagine an evolutionary biologist or someone in ecology, the difference between having students memorize certain features and attributes of insects, for example. So the difference between that and going out in the field and finding, locating those insects and kind of describing them while doing field work, that's the difference between a less authentic and a more authentic kind of environment. It's not to say that they can't learn things by memorizing the parts of bugs. It's that you're students are more likely to remember and to learn from those more authentic contexts. That reminds me a little bit of when Hoda Mostafa was on the show. And Hoda, I apologize if I just completely didn't get your last name (laughs) pronounced right. But she was talking about how much medical education has changed for physicians and, Mm. and other professionals just in terms of it being so much on the memorization and that doesn't really make you into a very good physician if that's really been the emphasis of the pedagogy that you've experienced. Right, exactly, exactly. And it certainly you need to re- remember things, but yes, yes. Uh, the, <laughs> just the, the start. context is important, application yeah. is important, and so not just remembering the anatomy, but actually working with simulators or you know models or, or other kinds of real contexts will, will help them learn more effectively. Yeah, and in some of our disciplines, we've become so focused on memorization. And again, it's it's crucial. It starts with mm-hmm. that, but it can't end with that because it is memorizing things in many disciplines to then translate into an incredibly complex environment like the human body, just, just as one of many examples. Right. And my kind of easy go-to example of this is that we ask kids to memorize spelling lists all the time, but that doesn't mean they know what the words mean. It just Mm. means that they can spell them. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And there's so much going on with how students learn math, how I learned math growing up and how different it is today. And there was a great video. I'll try to find it for the show notes because I may have used it as a recommendation, but I won't put it in the recommendation segment. So that's okay. But there was this great video (laughs) of a a researcher. I don't remember where he's from, but if I can find it, I'll stick it in there. But just talking about how, oh, did you learn how to do math like this? And then you carry the one and you do all this. and, and, And why do you do that? 
And I thought, I have no idea why you do that. And he said, yeah, nobody does because it doesn't make any sense. Like it works mathematically, but you've trained your brain to do it, not because it has any meaning behind it, but just because those are the steps that you take. And now today they're teaching math so differently because it's math that actually makes sense. And yes, you memorize it, but at the same time, your mind can then expand to other applications because you've learned it in a way that has meaning. Exactly. Before we get into today's recommendations, I wanted to say a big thank you to today's episode sponsor, and that is Text Expander. You've heard me talk about Text Expander. If you've been listening to Teaching in Higher Ed for any length of time, they make things so much easier for us. What happens is we type in a few characters that we have pre-decided will represent a longer string of text. This could be anything from email addresses to email signatures to website addresses to even something as simple as today's date, but really can save us time, especially if you're like me and you have to look and see what today's date actually is every time. Could be answers to commonly asked questions by students, by faculty, all kinds of ways that we can use Text Expander to make our lives easier in higher ed. And if you today visit textexpander.com slash podcast, and let them know that you heard about Text Expander from Teaching in Higher Ed. You can get 20% off your first year's subscription. It is a wonderful service. My husband and Dave and I have been using it for, we think, as long as it's been around. It's just essential to us every time we get a new computer. That's one of the first things that we bring over. It's a wonderful resource. What I like about it probably the most is how easy it is to get started using it, but how you can extend your learning about it beyond that. And there's lots of examples from people on their website where you can download what are called snippets. Those are those little shortcuts that you type in from examples that they have and then add those to your mix. And it's just fun how the community of people that use Text Expander can sharpen each other's use of it. It's a wonderful tool. And thanks again to Text Expander for sponsoring today's episode. Well, this is Perfect. the time in the show where we each get to give our recommendations and mine has nothing to do with anything we've talked about. I suppose it has to do with learning. So there's my cheat, but uh, I've been having fun. I got a new phone recently and it takes great photos. And my dad, who is just quite the hobbyist with photography, would probably be terrified because he really still likes to have, you know, the quote unquote real camera. But to me, the best camera you have is the one that you have with you. And so the one I have with me is this great, amazing camera that, you know, fits in one hand, which is truly remarkable. And so I have a link to how to take great photos on your smartphone. And it's just I was experimenting a little bit. We had a training for our faculty and one of the things in the article talks about looking for the light. And I don't mean just looking for the source of light and making sure that it's behind you as the photographer's head, because that is important, but looking for interesting shadows that are coming across or filtered light. And I've just been having so much fun. And I took a picture of one of our faculty members and it's so cool. Like it was just such a neat way to capture her as a person. And I felt so good about it. And, and it's just fun to be, beginner's mind with all this because this is not something I, I have done a lot with and it's just a great article to kind of inspire us even if you don't consider yourself a photographer that much more should you go check out this article because I don't either and it's just fun to play with the different practices that they talk about so well, that's great we're always learning right? yes always learning and Josh now I get to pass <laughs> it over to you because you have got lots for us to learn from 
Sure. I just thought I'd recommend some books that aren't necessarily connected to higher education, but I think are brilliant and have really shaped my thinking about the way people learn. And so some of them I've mentioned during the episode, the first is Susan Engels' The Hungry Mind, which is actually about education, but it's really about curiosity in children. So, you know, before college. Then there's The Scientist in the Crib by Alison Gopnik, Andrew Meltzoff, and Patricia Kuhl. That's a developmental psychology, but it's really fascinating look into human beings and the way we approach interesting questions. Jessica Leahy's The Gift of Failure is about education, it's about parenting, it's about coaching, it's about life, and how we can learn from those times where we don't encounter success right away. And the last recommendation I have is uh, another book I really like by Katherine Schultz called Being Wrong, which is about all the ways we're wrong and all the ways we learn from that. So many of these are new to me, and I'm excited to explore them more, although not all of them at the same time. (laughs) But um, Jessica Leahy, you've mentioned her a number of times, and I follow her on Twitter, and she also does a lot of just writing of shorter articles, and she's been a really great person to follow on Twitter, so people should check that out, too. I agree. I've learned a lot from her. Well, Josh, it has been so good to talk to you again, and congratulations on this wonderful book that I know has taken you many years to from start to finish. And it just was such a pleasure to read. And I'm so excited to introduce people listening to How Humans Learn, The Science and Stories Behind Effective College Teaching. Well, thank you so much, Bonnie. I really appreciate you having me on. And it's always great to talk to you. It's been wonderful to get a chance to talk to Josh Eiler again, and to have all of you listening and hearing more about his book, His book comes out on December 1st, so I'd encourage you to go pre-order it today and get it in your hands on December 1st. And I want to mention that if you have yet to sign up for the email list, you can get the show notes with a link to his book and all the other great links of things he talked about, including those great book recommendations. You can subscribe and just get a weekly email from me and it will have the show notes from the most recent episode in addition to an article about teaching or productivity. You can subscribe at teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. Thanks so much for listening and I'll see you next time.